God also brought me to my life's purpose through infertility, which is to help others going through it. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Hello, and thank you for joining me today on Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. Our guest, Anna Flores-Locke, struggled for years with infertility and isolation and heartbreak, not knowing where to turn. As a Latina woman, she shares her infertility story in the hope that she found along the way. Her experience with embryo donation is eye-opening and one that isn't usually talked about in this way. How it helped shift her perspective helps others make the right decision for them. Since her experience, thankfully, many changes have been made to provide women with counseling and support to assist them in the process of fertility treatment and embryo donation in particular. We hope this conversation provides education, emotional support, and a sense of community for the women who are walking in her shoes and are feeling alone on their fertility journey. Dr. Anna Flores-Locke is an international award-winning author and educator who has worked in the mental health profession for more than 15 years. She holds a doctorate in counseling and is a licensed professional counselor in New York, New Jersey, Illinois, and Puerto Rico. She currently owns Shalandra Counseling Services, a virtual infertility counseling center, and is an assistant professor in Nyack College. Dr. Anna is an active leader in the American Counseling Association and the author of Body Betrayal, Understanding and Living with Infertility and Introduction to 21st Century Counseling, a multicultural and social justice perspective. From her personal and clinical experience with infertility, she created the Fertility Clarity Approach to Infertility Counseling. She is a Latina twin mom from Chicago, currently lives in New Jersey, and enjoys dancing and going to the beach. Thank you for joining Thank me you. today. Although I shared a bit about your bio, I'd like to start off by having you share a bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I am a twin mom, boy-girl twins. Uh, their names are Charles and Alejandra, and they were conceived through IVF mm-hmm. uh, about nine years ago. They're going to be nine soon. And I am a small business owner of a group private practice in mental health counseling and infertility counseling in New Jersey. And we offer online and in-person counseling services. Mm-hmm. And the name of that practice is a combination of my son and daughter's name. So I call it Charlandra Counseling mm-hmm. Services. And I'm also an assistant professor at Naya College in New York City. And I love going to the beach and line dancing. Line dancing? Yes. Okay, I know that's a totally different... <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to talk about that yes. offline. Okay. <laughs> well, um, so a lot to unpack here first, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, infertility is isolating, discouraging and agonizing. Can you share what it's really like to go mm-hmm. down the rabbit hole of infertility? Like mm-hmm. really, um, really that ha- rabbit hole? Well, my rabbit hole began when I got married, which is now I think 12 years ago. And my husband and I, we were older when we got married, got married in the Roman Catholic Church, my dream wedding, family, friends, everyone there witnessing. I, you know, gave flowers to the Virgin Mary, praying for that fertility, praying for the baby to come as soon as possible. So uh, we right away were trying to have a baby. 
uh, right after we got married. And we tried for like three years and there was no baby. So month after month, it was that disappointment when my period came. We're not pregnant this month. Nope, not this month. And my husband would say, we'll keep trying. It'll happen. Just be patient. And I, of course, was not patient after months and months Mm -hmm. of trying and became very frustrated and very ashamed. I think, yeah, ashamed that I was not getting pregnant and it was supposed to be happening, right? Like I did Mm -hmm. everything right in my viewpoint, especially Mm -hmm. as as a Latina daughter of a family. It was get married in the Catholic church and then have children. Mm -hmm. And I did that progression and it wasn't happening. So that's where my rabbit hole began was right after getting married and not being able to get pregnant. Mm. So did you, after three years, and why did you wait three years? We were just fighting, my husband and I. (laughs) And our fighting kept us from seeking out the resources. And I didn't know I had infertility. I didn't know even what that was. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of this experiencing the disappointment in silence. Mm -hmm. And then what ended up happening with that anger was it, we turned it, well, I turned it, it, I turned it onto my husband. Mm -hmm. So I called it, call it the blame game in the bedroom. So Mm -hmm. my husband Mm -hmm. and I, I kept blaming my husband. My husband didn't blame me, but I had to blame someone. I had to find some kind of answer to what was happening. So I would blame him and I would tell him, you know, he's drinking too much diet soda. He's not exercising enough, (laughs) you know, anything that would try to change our situation. And I think because we were just fighting so much, we were not in a place of acceptance Mm -hmm. that there was a problem. And so we just never sought out treatment. And, um, and, you know, I don't remember, I mean, I guess somewhere along the line, my OBGYN referred us to an infertility clinic. She did, I think maybe a year or two into it. Mm -hmm. But even at that point, it was still in a denial place. Mm -hmm. And I first kind of tried like natural, holistic ways of getting pregnant. And I wanted to, for me, that was more aligned with my Catholic viewpoints, which was you know, God will bless us when it's time and we'll do natural ways. That didn't work. That was my first kind of fertility clinic. And then the second one we went to, I ended up not succeeding through the IUIs that we were scheduled to go. We didn't even do it because my husband couldn't provide the sample. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the doctor just was like, well, it probably wouldn't have worked anyways, which made me cry. Exactly. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I don't like you. You made me cry. This is not okay. So why would they offer to do IUI if they thought that it was not going to work anyway? Well, I think from now, what I know now, um, you know, this is now, uh, you know, 11 years into kind of the fertility experience Mm -hmm. and field, I understand that um, insurance benefits mandate doing IUIs first. Mm -hmm. So I think they were following that protocol. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, so that was the second clinic. (laughs) And then the third, so I ended up firing that doctor basically and saying, nope, I do not feel an emotional connection with you. This is not going to work for me. 
And then I went to my third doctor, who um, Dr. Barron, who we are still friends and collaborate together to help other patients. Um, and she's at the Fertility Institute of New Jersey and New York. And with her, I felt the connection. Mm-hmm. And that's when I did really go fully committed into my fertility experience to conceive through medical means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did you have to complete uh, more than one round of IVF or did you just do one? So we were very blessed that the first time we did IVF, we got pregnant. With the twins. So the w- twins. It, was it on purpose to transfer two embryos? Yeah. So at the time, uh, you know, nine years ago, when my doctor called me and said, you have strong embryos, we could put in one or we could put in two. It's up to you. And I was like, oh, I'm okay with twins. Mm-hmm. Let's go for two. Mm-hmm. And it was also, I think, very um, meant to be that way because I believe in visualization and vision boards. And I had a vision board at the time uh, to keep me focused on the process. That mm-hmm. was a long one to keep my stamina up when we were going through all the procedures and on the vision board happened to be a picture of two babies. So there was an image of twins already in my future. Mm -hmm. And I remember as well, um, the game of life. Mm -hmm. When I would play that as a kid, I would land on the little, you know, you spin and you move your little car and I would land on, you have twins. Mm -hmm. So so it was just kind of this, I was meant to be a twin mom. And so I was okay with the twins. Yeah. And they put in the two embryos and I got pregnant. So did they ever figure out what your diagnosis was? So yes. So after they um, delivered the twins through C-section, that's when the, my OBGYN saw that I had endometriosis. Oh, but so it was never detected beforehand. Never detected beforehand, no. Did you have any symptoms? No, I didn't have any symptoms of endometriosis. Wow. Well, um, can we touch on about the cultural factors that underpin and contribute to the silence and shame around Latinx infertility? Just, you know, I know you mentioned you waited around for three years and obviously you were, um, you know, with family kind of, you already had this process, this, this projection of how your life Mm -hmm. was going to be. And I know that it's a big, um, shoot. And I mentioned this many a times when I went to go and become an egg donor, I was told that black women didn't have fertility issues. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there's definitely the same stigma in um, the Latin community. So Mm -hmm. what do you think is, what do you think of your perspective there? Yeah, I agree with you, Elle, that it's so stigmatized in our communities. Um, First of all, the topic of sexuality Mm. is not talked about. (laughs) So if you're not talking about sex, you're not going to talk about fertility. Right. Uh, um, And like you said, the stereotype that we are hypersexual or we are hyper fertile. And, you know, that's kind of like what the Latina woman is known for Mm -hmm. in a way, right? Being sexual and being pregnant. So Mm -hmm. there was that sense of um, inadequacy in my own identity as a Latina, that I wasn't those things, fertile or, uh, you know, hypersexual. And there was also the pressure of the obligation to my family to have the baby. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I have a PhD, I own a business, I own a home. 
I have many accomplishments, but none of that mattered mm. to my parents, especially after I got married. Mm-hmm. What mattered was where's the grandkids? Where's my kid? My, they call them their kids, right? Mm-hmm. Where's the grandkids? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it really put me into a depression of like worthlessness. Mm-hmm. Because if my only definition of what real worthy Latina woman meant was to have children and I wasn't meeting that goal, then what was I? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it felt like I was nothing. Mm-hmm. I was worthless. I was not meeting my obligations as, as a wife either. So it was so intense, that pressure, that cultural obligation. And then on top of it, that layer of it being a taboo topic or something stigmatized or something that doesn't exist in our cultures. Mm -hmm. So then how can I even open up and talk to anyone about it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially when in our cultures, we keep our problems in the family. Yes. We don't go outside the house. (laughs) We, right. We don't air our dirty laundry. So I got some dirty laundry and I can't air it outside nor inside. So what what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened, you know, I went inwards, which led to my depression Mm -hmm. and sense of isolation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and for me, that looked like anxiety and anger and the target was my husband Mm -hmm. in our marriage. And so and kind of a interesting factor with my story as well is that my husband is white American. Mm-hmm. So there's the cultural factor of him being white and me being Latina. And so for him, you know, in the white culture, he didn't have the experience of his family putting pressure or demand on him about having a child. And also, I mean, it allowed me access to medical care because we live in a white affluent suburb now and he has good medical insurance and I was able to get the doctors to help me. But along with the doctors and the access, my cultural identity of being Latina was not addressed either in those arenas. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting piece as I reflect on my experience of like the Latina part of me wasn't really talked about even when I did enter into reproductive medicine. And, um, you know, and that's something now that I'm very committed to because Again, it's like without talking about culture and identity, you're missing out on the totality of a person. Yep. yep. So, and then you really can't help help them in the ways that they truly need to be helped and supported within their cultural world. Mm-hmm. How did your family respond when you, if you told them that you had mm-hmm. to do <laughs> IVF and, you know, you had to go down that road because I know for myself, I didn't have infertility, but when I decided to be an egg donor and a surrogate, um, you know, my mom is Catholic and trying to explain to her that was not the most Mm -hmm. (laughs) easiest conversation. No. Well, I was lucky because I live in New Jersey and all my family's in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So, It was a good and bad, a good in that I could easily hide, a bad in that I was isolating from my family. Mm -hmm. So to your question, 
I never had to tell them and they never saw it happening because I was in New Jersey doing it all and they just never knew. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm sure they know now. They know now because oh. it's in the book. So <laughs> when it was so when I was writing my book, I was more afraid of my parents reading it than the public. <laughs> and I was Isn't like, that, oh, they're, they're going to know Isn't now. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. So being in New Jersey away from my family allowed me to hide. But again, like the cost to me was I was going to medical appointments by myself, or you know, if my husband can take me, sure. um, but mostly by myself. And that, again, just contributed to my depression and isolation and the whole thing. Mm. And then it was, you know, funny kind of after or while I was writing my story, I was remembering, oh, I think my aunt, you know, had some infertility thing going on. And this was like oh, 20 years ago to me, I guess I was younger, right? I was a younger, uh, I guess it would have been 20 years. I don't know. It was a, a while ago. So I vaguely remember it. But when I was going through infertility, I didn't remember it at the time either. So if there was one person in my family I could have talked to would have been this one aunt who did have infertility because of a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. She wasn't able to, um, but I didn't remember. I didn't think to talk to her even until now after mm -hmm. reading the book, she's mm -hmm. also like, I, you know, now we connect on that story. But at the time I didn't, I, I didn't even remember and think to contact her. And I think it's also a disservice that we as a society do because it's not just about us or even our fam past, you know, moms or aunts or whatever. But what about our children? Like we, mm -hmm. you know, we go through these things in silence and we don't share anything, not knowing what our children are going to endure mm -hmm. and why would we want them to go down the same path, the same mm -hmm. road, when if we just would begin sharing what we're going through and then help them so that they know to begin looking at things much earlier than what we would have ever considered mm -hmm. doing, mm -hmm. that that would make a significant impact in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, our kids. And it's interesting you mentioned the kids because I, um, well, with my kids, now that I am a very open book and an advocate in the field of fertility, mental health, I, they know, I mean, they're only going to be nine. They know to how their developmental understanding of mm -hmm. reproduction, they know how they were conceived. And as they get older, I'll continue explaining to them how they were conceived. But um, I do work with uh, clients Get providing infertility counseling. And one client, she's also Latina and she is pregnant now from a successful IVF. And part of our counseling conversations is surrounding her disclosure to her family about conceiving through IVF. Because again, of that shame, mm -hmm. there's just a negative feeling connected to, I conceived through IVF. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like this implicit, I was inadequate. I was something wrong with me. I had to have a doctor make our babies. And that old, old idea of the test tube baby, I mm -hmm. think still lingers in our consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Of your baby was conceived in a Petri dish and then they put it in you, you know, <laughs> like, what are you doing, right? Yep. And especially with conservative Catholic viewpoints, we don't, we, it's so mysterious to us that it's like, you know, God should be doing that stuff, not doctors. You're messing around with stuff that God does kind of thing. 
And uh, so that's part of our conversation. And so it's interesting that you bring up the children because Mm -hmm. then it's also a matter of disclosing to your own kids how they were conceived, Mm -hmm. disclosing to your family how they were conceived, um, and then getting to your own place of acceptance surrounding that aspect of the story. Mm -hmm. As for me, it was like, well, God works through doctors and... God brought this doctor into my life to conceive the babies. And God also brought me to my life's purpose through infertility, which is to help others going through it. So Mm -hmm. I am grateful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I am blessed for God's provision upon this aspect of my story. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's very connected. It's not separate. You know, God and medicine is very connected. Yes. And I do think too that... um, Going back to okay, you know, uh, it should be left left up to God to to you know to get you pregnant or whatever. But then, if you think about it, the only thing that the fertility not only thing, but the thing that the fertility clinic or reproductive endocrinologist did was transfer that embryo into the uterus. Mm-hmm. They have no more control after that. Right after that then Mm -hmm. it's God or the Mm -hmm. universe or whatever people want to call it. But there's something that is still kept secret Uh that no one would ever know. Right. So Mm -hmm. I, I do feel that, you know, although we have the ability and we have the opportunity and we have the means to be able to do certain things in this world, right, as human beings, but there's still things that I feel mm-hmm. wasn't released to us, will never be released to us. Because even, like I said, when that RE transfers that embryo, mm-hmm. it's it's not up to the RE whether you're going to get mm-hmm. pregnant or not. It's not up to you. It's not mm-hmm. up to anybody. No. You know, but God. So, right. you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, um, you know, and like he says, faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. So you still have to go and do the work in order yeah. for him then to take over. So, right. okay, yeah. I can go down that rabbit hole, and, but <laughs> I, I have yeah. a whole lot more. We got to talk about specifically yes. about, okay, so you finished having your children mm-hmm. and decided that you were done. And then, and then what? Yeah, well, I thought I was done. And I say it that way because, again, through writing my story, I realized that I was in a very post-traumatic, stressful situation. And I, I um, conceptualize it that way because the process of going through infertility treatments, the process of a high-risk pregnancy, the high-risk or the experience of a uh, C-section, all of that was traumatic for me and for others going through it. It's a very traumatic experience that I think we don't talk about it in that essence. Mm -hmm. And so, and being traumatic, what that means is, you know, you're psych, you, um, the experience overwhelms your ability to psychologically cope. So for me, what ended up happening is I shut down my emotions. So I compartmentalize and I go into that survival mode of, Doctor, tell me what to do. I do it. I get pregnant. I do, you know, I just survived day by day, had the babies again, another year or two of just survival because I had to raise twins now and be a mom. So all my emotions were never, they were numbed out. Mm-hmm. And because that happens, emotions don't go away over time. 
mm-hmm. they remain. And then we experience triggers sometimes. And so my trigger was, you know, going back to like the open house for my fertility clinic. They had a grand opening in a new office. And I went there to show my support and I was triggered from the equipment, the medical equipment that all brought me back to the traumatic experience of the examinations, the probing, the ultrasounds, the pap smears, the blood work, all of those invasive uh, interventions that I never emotionally felt when I was going through them Mm -hmm. uh, came back. And so because I was so emotionally distraught from just that visit to the office, my and, and and after my doctor even said, oh, yeah, you know, you can have another one because I had frozen embryos at this point, I think like six of them. And uh, the babies were like three or so at the time. So the doctor's like, yeah, go, let's try for another one. And I was just like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> Again, only because of the traumatic emotions I was experiencing led me to that answer, mm. not an actual objective process for me. So that's why I said, I thought, you know, I thought I was done. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, part of me now after writing my story and um, reflecting on my experience and realizing like, okay, I ended up making a quick decision from an emotional place because of the trauma to um, donate my embryos to, um, you know, other parents who want to wanted to have babies that I was not ready to make that decision at the time. And so I sat with a lot of regret for a long time because a couple years later, or even, yeah, I, I kept having this feeling of wanting to have a third and fantasizing, oh, maybe we will get pregnant. Maybe somehow I will get pregnant naturally. And that never happened. And so I did have regret of like, I wish I had my embryos because then I would probably try again. So, so, so you donated, so you had your remaining embryos yeah, and then you decided after that, that you were going to donate your embryos. And so yeah. did you donate it to the clinic or through, or through the clinic rather? Yeah. So at the time they no longer do this, but at the time they had an anonymous donor program. So I um, signed off my rights, legal rights to my embryos, which meant that I was not able to get any, I'm not able to get any information about the outcome Mm -hmm. of the embryos. So um, my husband and I signed the form, mailed it in, and they, then they, they took, they did what they did with the embryos. I don't even Mm -hmm. know what happened to them. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then a couple of years later, is that when you started thinking about maybe I want to have another child? Did yeah. you? So when you did that, did they have you go through any counseling? Did you speak to anybody? Did anybody kind of explain that whole process to you of what is that going to be like when you donate your embryos? No, there was nothing, unfortunately. And also, you know, I didn't know what to ask either. Mm-hmm. I just was given three options at the time because you know remember what they were yeah so they were just um discard them donate them to science or donate them to other parents Mm -hmm. or other people wanting to conceive Mm -hmm. so for me all three were not good options but 
the one that seemed the best one was to donate them to to give the embryos a chance mm-hmm. at living at at uh, you know becoming a a baby. Mm-hmm. So that's what we ended up deciding. But you know, I it was twofold. It was the clinic at the time didn't offer counseling or support, and then I didn't know to ask either because mm-hmm. uh, I know if I did ask they would have slowed it down they would have provided sure. me with resources but I just didn't even ask I just was like what are the options and they told me and then I just kind of decided it was just very quick I didn't give myself that time to process and take time to do it mm-hmm. and um, now actually after you know talking with you <laughs> at the <laughs> conference about this experience and Knowing now that there is counselors who you can talk to, there is legal aspects regarding donating. I did go back to Dr. Barron and I was just like, oh, I'm just curious. Like, is there a way I can know any information about what happened to the embryos? And they said, no, you can't. And I said, okay, you know, just reflecting from my experience, I just wanted to uh, encourage that people who are in my position to donate embryos are provided with the resource to have counseling mm-hmm. because it is an emotional decision. And they had, they ended up saying at this point, they no longer do the donor program. So they only, I guess, do the discard or donate to science. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also said that they are very aware of if there's a financial burden for people to maintain the fee to freeze the embryos, that they don't force people to make a decision. They'll like, keep the embryos frozen until you're ready to decide what to do with them, mm-hmm. irregardless if you could, if you could pay for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're very patient centered and they're very caring. And I was appreciative of that. And at the same time, you know, we had a conversation about that additional level of counseling support for people mm-hmm. deciding what to do with embryos. Yeah. Which I know right now that embryo disposition is a huge issue now because, you know, if you think about it for years and years and years, people have been creating embryos and they, you know, may have complete their family building and, but here these embryos sit Mm -hmm. and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, similar to you, they don't want to discard them. They don't want to donate them to science, but, you know, thinking about, okay, uh, potentially, there could be somebody else out there with my now it's not just my genetics it could my children's genetics like my mm-hmm. children can have full siblings out there mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. and you have absolutely no concept of where who or any of those details and i'm sure it's a very scary pro- th- thought mm-hmm. to think about mm-hmm. so yeah. what what do you how have you processed? And I know we yeah. were talking um, at the conference, and but how do you process through that knowing, okay, I can't discard them. Uh, I, and I don't want it to be science, but I have to make the decision. Mm-hmm. But what do you, you know, what do you have mm-hmm. to go through in your head in order for you to be able to say, okay, I'm ready? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, I mean, my process was, I remember reading a book about adoption because I was helping another client out with her own adoption story. So I was reading on adoption. And as I was reading it, I almost felt like I was 
the uh, mother who gave her babies up for adoption. That's how emotionally it felt for me, donating my embryos. Because in my mind and in my heart, each of those embryos were my babies. Mm-hmm. So I went through a period of grief in my heart feeling like I gave up my babies for adoption, meaning I donated my embryos. Mm-hmm. So there was a grieving process. There was talking with you know my husband about it and his viewpoint was very much like, you know, if the babies were conceived by other individuals, we gave the gift of life to another family to help them build their family. And that was kind of comforting after I kind of went through the grieving process. It was comforting to know, okay, well, if God decided that those embryos were meant to live, there's another family that's blessed because of them. Mm-hmm. And then I'm definitely an open door with my home as well. So I welcome any of the, <laughs> any of those future, any of my children, siblings out there showing up at any time at my door. Mm-hmm. And I will love them as if I knew them their whole life. Mm-hmm. So that would be like a dream to meet one of them mm-hmm. in the future if they were ever born. So, um, but then, you know, so I went through the grieving. It was comforting to know, okay, I'm blessing another family, but it still felt like I was, my heart still felt that whole of the emptiness of missing mm-hmm. my babies. It was the sense of like, again, that sense of, I gave my, you know, I gave my babies away. I love them. I don't know anything about them. And there was just that empty feeling. And especially it's heightened when I did have that maternal instinct of like, I wanted another one and I could have had another one. And then I would have had more control and knowledge of what happened to the embryos. Mm -hmm. At that point, I would have thawed them. I would have transferred one and then see what happens to the others. And that would have been the end of it, basically, for for me. That's not what happened. And then talking to you, and I was saying, oh, my babies, my babies. And you just told me, you need to stop calling them your babies. (laughs) And I was like, she's right. And when you really got me to think of it differently, Mm -hmm. to help me detach, Mm -hmm. right? To, To help me detach from that feeling of, me abandoning my babies to a place of saying, I gifted my genetic material mm-hmm. to someone else. Mm-hmm. And when I shifted that perspective from my baby to genetic material, that helped me heal mm-hmm. a lot more because now I, I was like, okay, genetic material, they're not my babies because I, I didn't carry them. I didn't birth them. I'm not raising them, right? They belong to someone else now. They are someone else's baby. And, um, you know, that got me to a place of peace with it. Mm -hmm. And I do feel more whole now. And it helped me even commit more to my own two kids. Because I think sometimes when you feel like you're lacking, Mm -hmm. you focus on what you're lacking instead of focusing on what you have. Mm -hmm. And when I came to that place of, I'm not lacking. I have my family. I'm going to focus on them. Mm -hmm. This is where it's at. 
my two little twins <laughs> um, who were those little embryos who became babies and who are here now. And so that has brought me so much peace and, and harmony to my life that, um, that now, yeah, I really do have that sense of, I guess, joy that I hopefully gifted a baby to someone else if the embryos did. Mm-hmm conceive and we're born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but you know, it took many years. <laughs> and it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not a walk in the park. This is mm-hmm. not a decision that should be taken lightly. And, and I'm glad that as an industry, we're shifting and realizing the importance of, um, you know, quite honestly, there's no such thing as anonymity anymore yeah. because there you know, with things like Ancestry.com and 23andMe and all of these other things, you know, careful what you wish for because mm-hmm. somebody just may be knocking on your door. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but it's also another reason why I have always just been upfront and truthful with my my family, with my children, because, you know, knowing that I have donor babies out there, um, I don't want to have any surprises of, you know, somebody knocking on my door. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when we were at the conference, I mentioned to you, you know, I have a donor baby that looks just like me. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, I look at her and I'm looking at a friend's child. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, like I had told you then, you know, what I gave was DNA. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a part of me. But it is still DNA because I gave it hoping with the intention that it was going to work, but I can't guarantee Mm. that it did or Mm -hmm. that it will, you know, and yes, you hope that it worked, you know, and you had these six embryos and hopefully somebody has been able to use them. And, you know, maybe there's another six Anna's running around. Who knows? (laughs) But it's still what you provided was that gift Mm -hmm. of that genetic material for, you know, like you said, that opportunity for somebody else to be a parent. Um, Mm. And I'm curious, though, especially given that you are Latina, had to go through IVF and then now donated embryos. Like, how do you wrap your head around that to even share it within the community because you already know that the community is not accepting right mm-hmm. of even having to think about having another human get in the middle of what happens mm-hmm. in the closed doors in your bedroom mm-hmm. and now you've done all of these extra steps yeah um so yeah. what's your thoughts on that i well now you know 11 years into this I've come to a place of owning my story. And I think once you own your story, now I can go out and I can talk freely about it. And mm-hmm. so it, I'm okay now with, and like my family had, you know, a lot of my family members have bought the book, have read the book. And some of my cousins, I have lots of cousins and they're getting married older, which is the current trend, right? People are postponing marriage. So I have a cousin getting married next month. And so I'm kind of already preparing myself at least to be there for her if I do see like her struggling with conceiving or even just broaching the topic with her about, oh, you know, like after you guys are married, 
and you're having trouble conceiving, I went through that same thing and I can support you in that. And so with the book being out there, my family members reading it with my own courage that I have because I own my story, I can openly talk about it. And which for most of our family members means starting with simple education about what is IVF, about what is infertility. And most of the time, you know, I can share that information and they are open to hearing it. They're supportive, you know, and I haven't really talked to them about the embryos. I mean, again, they've read it in the book, but not details as far as, like you mentioned, what it means to maybe there is some other family members out there, you know, and Mm -hmm. that whole thing is we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we do, then I just explain to them the way it is. And that's all I can do. Yeah. You know, and I think it's helpful to remember that we can't control how other people react or perceive information. So once you decide to say, OK, I'm going to disclose my story, it's up to them to react and have their questions or comments. And sometimes, yeah, you're going to face those, I call them, you know, reproductive microaggressions, which are those little insults and those little comments of like, you know, well, when you're trying to conceive, what's, you know, what are you doing wrong? It only takes Mm -hmm. five minutes. Just relax. Go on vacation. You have a baby. Like, you know, all these statements that people say that are hurtful. So we are going to have reproductive microaggressions. And that's part of this journey, unfortunately. Um, but it's not something that we can't cope with and handle mm-hmm. and, um, you know, learn skills to react to those comments in a way that doesn't further emotionally damage us than we already are feeling in this whole process. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. So you created mm-hmm. the Fertility Clarity a counseling mm-hmm. approach to provide others with the emotional relief and support that you never received. Mm-hmm. What? What support have you seen um, specifically needed to support women of color and Latinas? And I mean, just really anybody in general, quite frankly, on their Mm -hmm. fertility journey. Yeah. So what I have seen is um, just the ongoing support throughout the whole journey because infertility never ends. (laughs) So I still face emotional struggles when, uh, you know, somebody gets pregnant. Or, you know, so, so what I have found is, you know, the, the industry is very good at helping clients, patients who are like in the midst of the journey, right? Like deciding what option to do. There is the psychological care and support in those moments. However, the ongoing support of like, okay, we did an IVF and that failed. At that moment, there's a loss of that dream of having the baby. So there's grief work that has to happen at that point. That's where fertility clarity comes in. When you then just then then you go through grief and then you're like, well, do I want to try again or not try again? There's so many junctures of decision points that require that ongoing counseling support. That's where fertility clarity helps mm-hmm. patients deciding what am I going to do next, keeping their stamina to keep going if that's what they want to do. And sometimes that means taking a pause Mm -hmm. and saying, I'm going to take a break for a couple months 
and in counseling talk about my grief, my disappointment, my frustration, my sense of isolation, and just come to a place of acceptance of, okay, I have infertility or I'm having trouble conceiving. That's part of my story. And this is the journey I'm on right now. And this is where I'm going to go from here. So that's really kind of what the Fertility Clarity Program is designed to do, is to really give an ongoing emotional support throughout the journey. And that may not always mean becoming a parent. Mm -hmm. There may become a time where you decide, I'm going to live child-free or I'm going to adopt. Again, all these decisions are so complex (laughs) that uh, we need that emotional support from a trained helping professional who can guide you through that. And along with that, not only individually, but for the couple. So if this is a couple going through this process, how to maintain their intimacy, how to regain their intimacy once trying to conceive takes it from them, right? Um, Sex becomes a chore and no longer pleasurable. And that impacts the whole relationship and the marriage. So that's an aspect of fertility clarity as well is getting the couples to talk to each other about this whole thing. And does it does it get better after you, okay, like you said, you know, you ended up having your children and you were done and now you're a mom of exactly what you wanted. Does it, mm-hmm. all of those feelings and issues go away? No, <laughs> no, because I, you know, I, like we said earlier, you know, after I got married, it was, oh, I'm going to get pregnant and, oh, we're going to have a baby shower and, oh, I'm going to walk around with my bump and, oh, it's going to be glorious. And then, oh, we're going to have another one. You know, this whole fantasy that a lot of girls, care, women carry mm-hmm. and none of that happened for me. So, you know, I didn't have a baby shower. I was in the hospital most of my pregnancy. I didn't have the natural birth experience. It was a C-section and I was so drugged out that I fell asleep. I just blacked out and I didn't hold my babies after they were born. They were born premature. They were put into the NICU. You know, I didn't see them till the next day. So this whole fantasy of how I thought it would look like did not happen. So even though I have my babies, I have my twins now and it's nine years later, there's still grief that happens, that is happening because I didn't have those happy moments, those rituals I didn't go through. And so no, you know, infertility never ends. And I still feel, and it's my own process, something we do in Fertility Clarity is, you know, write a letter to your uterus. And I have to do that because there's a sense of like, uterus, you betrayed me. Like you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And I still feel that month after month of not getting pregnant with my husband. And so that feeling of like, I'm still not a fully functioning woman Mm. in some ways. So that's an area of healing for me to continue doing. But yeah, no, just because you have the babies doesn't make it all go away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What would you like for women who are considering fertility treatment to know? Mm -hmm. I want them to know that if they are not happy with the connection with their doctor that they can decide to go somewhere else. I think that, <laughs> that period point period, stop. <laughs> that's it. Because I think, especially in the Latina and, you know, African-American communities, 
not only is there a sense of mistrust with doctors, but there's also a sense of they're the doctor, so I respect their authority. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a voice when I go in that office. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I want people to know that you do have a voice, you do have a choice to be empowered to fire the doctor if that's not who you're happy with and find another person that you match with. Because for me, like that was my turning point for getting pregnant was having a good connection with my fertility doctor. And that gave me that comfort to undergo all these invasive medical procedures because I felt like I had a connection with the doctor and that gave me comfort. And so as a therapist, I believe in that power of the emotional connection to really be a protective factor in the journey of trying to conceive. Mm -hmm. Well, Anna, I appreciate your time and your truth and just uh, you being open and sharing your story. And I definitely will have all of your information in our show notes with um, how they can get to the book and contact information and all of that other good stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so grateful that I can share my story. So our communities know like, hey, there's women out there that look like you that have this experience and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not your fault. And we are here for one another to support each other. We are a strong community of infertility warriors, which I know you know. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Amen to that. So, well, I appreciate you and thank you for um, joining us today. You're welcome. We would love for you to rate us. So if you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow Fertility Cafe on its Instagram and Facebook channel at Family Inceptions. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey.